Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture by the spectator world. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined as always by my colleague Amber Athey. And Amber, you are in Colorado today. We're not usually in the district like we usually are for the sake of this podcast. You can hear that you're you're in a diner right now. I can hear the kind of clamor behind you. You're moderating a debate tonight. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it a diner. I think it's a little bougier than that. But uh, (laughs) I am... At a, at a hotel, a historic hotel in downtown Boulder, and I'm moderating a debate tonight at the University of Colorado at Boulder on the elimination of fossil fuels. It's part of the Campus Liberty Tour series through the Steamboat Institute, of which I'm a fellow. And Alex Epstein, who's written The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, will be debating General Wesley Clark on whether or not America should eliminate fossil fuel use to prevent climate catastrophe. So should be pretty interesting. I think we're going to have a lot of students come out and hopefully the two experts can kind of carry the, the whole thing because I, I don't know how much, uh, how useful I'm going to be as a moderator considering I, I'm not a scientist, but we'll see how it goes. Well, kudos on getting Wesley Clark because I've been watching CNN a little bit and I think he's been on there nonstop. He's been like living on CNN. Yeah. So I'm glad he took some time. Is there a way that our viewers can watch this uh, this debate if they want to? Uh, that's a good question. I don't think they'll be able to watch it live, but I believe it's going to be recorded and posted after the fact. And I'll share it on all of my social media accounts, and maybe we'll even do a little write-up at The Spectator. Great. Well, hopefully our our viewers can keep an eye on that. It sounds very exciting. Uh, Amber's in Colorado. I'm back here in D.C., and the main story we're talking about today does come from D.C., uh, the president's big State of the Union address. I hate the State of the Union, just to to start off with that. I I think it's just a, a terrible ritual. Everybody's forced to stand and clap for the president. And of course, it's very partisan as well. It's a campaign speech that essentially the opposition is forced to to sit through and to smile through. It, it, it's not, I don't think it has any place in a, a good republic like ours. But I will say that last night, there was a moment of genuine bipartisanship, genuine unity, as opposed to just a manufactured unity. And that was when the president was talking about Ukraine. Members wildly applauded uh, that country against the Russian invasion. A lot of them uh, wore Ukrainian flags, waved Ukrainian flags, it was an interesting dynamic, and it was, uh, I think, a level of unity that I haven't seen at a State of the Union address in a very long time. As for the president's rhetoric, you know, we saw him talk about the battle between democracies and autocracies, talk about how you cannot let a dictator get away with causing chaos or he'll only cause more. Uh, my sense from this, it, it took me back to 2003, right? This was the most George W. Bush-ish speech that I've seen since the Bush administration, we haven't seen a president thunder about a dictator since you know Saddam Hussein's head was on a was on a plate, and yeah, I, I so I have mixed feelings about it. Right, it, it was certainly very hawkish. I thought. Yeah, I agree more so than some of his past speeches. I mean, he did sort of indicate that he wasn't interested in sending troops over there, which is to be expected. But just the general rhetoric um, definitely suggested a forceful response from the U.S. And I thought it was actually quite disturbing how excited all of these lawmakers, regardless of parties, seem to be about that prospect. No matter, it seems, how much the new populist right and um, the sort of Glenn Greenwald left agree on a more isolationist and dovish foreign policy, the politicians in power still really love war. And I thought it was bizarre as well to see so much Ukrainian pride. Like we can't even get democratic lawmakers to really wave the American flag, but 
here people are dumping out Russian vodka and like vandalizing Russian stores. And you see these tweets from pundits talking about how all Russians must take a side on this issue. And you just don't even see that same fervor for American domestic issues or even just that general level of patriotism for America. And I think it was a good reminder of just how out of step these politicians can be with everyday Americans who I think for the most part are concerned about Ukraine in the sense of how it could potentially affect America in terms of the oil independent, the oil dependence from Russia, as well as whether or not their own sons and daughters are going to be sent off to war. But outside of that, do they really care that the Ukrainian people are being invaded by Russia? I don't think so. I think certainly the level of passion is lower among the average American household than it is on CNN. Right. And I think that's a very important point because it was all, I mean, you're right. It was our politicians finally all united under the flag. It was just the Ukrainian flag rather than the American one, which was stunning to see. You've certainly got a lot of virtue signaling going on. Uh, guys, the Smirnoff vodka, you're dumping down the drain. You should dump your Smirnoff vodka down the drain because it's, you should drink, you know, we should drink brown whiskey or you should drink brown liquors. But um, that's made in Britain. It's not made in Russia. You're not yeah. achieving anything by doing that. It's owned by a UK company. You're just making our lives harder because we're owned by the spectator. So this is not, it's all just this kind of simplistic, superficial surface level stuff. Um, and that's okay. I mean, that that happens. There's propaganda in any war. Apparently the ghost of Kiev, for example, this fighter pilot who has been, he shot down six Russian jets in the course of a couple of days. He's not, he's a fiction. He doesn't actually exist. There's definite propaganda going on here and we should be careful about that. We want to commit ourselves to the truth. But still, I, I understand it in this sense. It's such a horrifying moment for the world. It is such, it, it's a scenario that we almost thought that we were beyond, we had transcended. The idea that there could ever be a war in Europe, the idea that a strong man would ever invade another sovereign nation. And I, I think we were probably a bit naive and a bit complacent forever thinking that, right? I, this is how, this is the entire history of the world. Why would we think that something like this couldn't occur? But it, there, there, it, I think it has been a little bit encouraging anyway to see people set aside differences and support this poor besotted nation, this, this poor Ukraine. Whether or not we ought to get militarily involved, I think, is, of course, a different question. Yeah, I agree. And I definitely understand the horror-esque reactions to what's going on. Um, I mean, for us, like our generation, that we really haven't seen a we I mean we haven't seen a world war. Afghanistan and Iraq was one thing, but this is a wholly different animal. Um, the idea of fighting these world superpowers does spark a kind of terror that is separate from, you know, a desert ground campaign in the Middle East. But I do think that watching I think what's different about this propaganda is that it does seem geared towards eliciting not just a response of solidarity, but a, almost a guilt trip. Like, look at how hard the Ukrainians are fighting. We have to do that too. And I don't think all of that is, I don't think all of the propaganda or misinformation that's coming out is doing that. And I am actually getting quite annoyed by some people on our own side who are suggesting that like every little piece of material that comes out of Ukraine must be vigorously fact-checked. Otherwise you're giving in to, um, you know, the war hawks. But I I do understand that where that sentiment's coming from. And it's because I do think there is just a reflexive sort of response on behalf of many lawmakers to 
get involved militarily, whether it's suggesting implementing a no-fly zone, which would mean shooting down Russian planes, which would, of course, be an act of war, or otherwise just suggesting that the sanctions are not enough. I think you have to be human at the end of the day. And I think if you look at what's happening in Ukraine and you aren't horrified and revulsed and you don't understand that Ukraine is the victim here and you just offer up some excuse about how, oh, well, NATO shouldn't have been expanded eastward. Well, maybe it shouldn't have. And we can talk about the policy behind this, certainly. But but Ukraine is the victim. Uh, Ukraine is being beaten up. Ukrainians are being slaughtered right now. And as that convoy moves towards Kyiv, as Russia has now encircled three Ukrainian cities as of the time of this podcast, it's probably only going to get worse. So don't hang your humanity on a hook at the door uh, because you're, you're so worried about American intervention. On the other hand, the other side is falling for this tendency that I've always hated in foreign policy discussions. And it's this idea that you can just hit a button and a no-fly zone will appear, right? This idea that right. you can just... <laughs> It's like you're playing a video game and you click and the building sprouts up out of the ground, one of those strategy games. That's not how it works in real life. To set up a fly, a no-fly zone over all of Ukraine, do you understand what would go into that, the amount of logistics, the amount of materiel? It would almost certainly put us into direct contact as well with the Russian Air Force. And, and then what happens, right? What happens when we're exchanging missiles with Russia's jets? Amber, like you were saying before, you and I have never known, I, I've never thought about nuclear annihilation in my entire life, probably. I, I've never surmised what it would be like to have to take my family downstairs and hide under a desk or something, because it's possible that Russia is going to nuke Washington. I thought about that for the first time a few days ago, when Russia announced that they were putting their their nuclear missile system on alert. It's, it, it is terrifying. It's scary. And, and speculating about Putin's mental condition what's going through his mind that would lead him to do this. It's not good that this is the man who's in charge of uh, thousands of nuclear warheads. It's a very bad situation. Yeah, I definitely hear that. I mean, I was just talking with my boyfriend the other day about, and he's like already kind of a prepper in some respects. So <laughs> take this with a grain of salt, but we were talking about, you know, what would happen if a nuclear weapon were to hit DC? Like, are we in the blast zone? What's the quickest way to get out of here? Like, which highway should we take? Does he have enough iodine pills? I mean, it's insane stuff, but it's the sort of things that you start thinking about when your mind goes to that place of self-preservation. And it, it is uh, really insane to think that we could potentially be in that situation or that we even have to consider that we would be in that situation. Um, now, shall we talk about uh, a bit more about the state of the union? Because although Ukraine w was sort of the central uniting point, I was kind of surprised by a couple of things that Biden chose to mention. And they are things that are very popular with the democratic party writ large, but they've sort of seen the writing on the wall, read the tea leaves and now Biden is giving voice to them at the State of the Union, one of which is the fact that uh, schools are now going to be reopened across the country or have been reopened across the country in spite of the pandemic or post-pandemic, in my perspective. And then also he talked about how they're not going to defund the police. And both of those things, like taking credit for not defunding the police and reopening schools is a complete rewriting of history because it was leftists in his party who were responsible for both of those policies in the first place. Yeah. And to address them separately, I think that 
first of all, it's hilarious that they got rid of the mask mandate in Congress right before the address last night. I mean, that, that shows right. you just how cynical they were willing to be. A lot of Republicans didn't attend the address, and you can understand why. But yeah, the idea that it is the Democratic Party and more importantly, their masters and the teachers unions who have held out against this from the beginning, who have caused this problem, caused walkouts of students, caused rage among parents from the start. And to just kind of wave that away and to take credit for the fact that schools are now coming back online. Yeah, not that Biden is the most COVID paranoid person there is, but still it's his party who is causing this mess. The defund the police issue, I think I put in a different category because I've always viewed Biden as a kind of senatorial Irish cop. You know, he's not very uh, ideological. He, he kind of operates more on a, a slapdash sense of common sense. He was very wound up about national security back in the 90s, for example, when terrorism was seen as being more of a right wing problem, you know, militias in Idaho and so on. Uh, he wanted to give the federal government and the cops the tools they needed to go after him. So I, he's always been, in a sense, pro-police. Uh, much more so than the left wing of his party, whatever kind of curtailments he's made in order to get elected president. And, and, but I thought the fact that he came out and said that, and he felt free to say that, that was a very powerful and strong statement. And it showed that the the ideological hissy fit that the Democrats threw back in 2020, perhaps it's finally come to an end. Perhaps they're, they're saying uh, this has caused spiking crime across the United States. None of this was ever realistic. And they're, they're pulling back from it a little bit. Uh, not all of them, but but again, the fact that Biden felt free to say that, I think, is an important indication. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, we, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also touch on the interruptions that took place during his address. There was one in particular that's garnered a lot of attention, and that was Lauren Boebert. Um, Joe Biden was talking about service members who have died of, of ailments either in combat, either killed in action in combat or service members who have died of ailments that they received due to their service. So for example, he says, you know, I may never know that my son Bo Biden got brain cancer as a result of working a burn pit, but you know, there could be a link there. As he was talking about this, and before he got to the mention of his son Bo, Lauren Boebert shouted out, you put 13 of them in there flag-wrapped coffins, referring to the individuals who were killed by that suicide bomber in Afghanistan um, as we were withdrawing our troops from the airport. Um, there's been a lot of hand-wringing and sort of pearl-clutching about it. Um, and I'm of two minds about it because I think it was actually pretty horrific that Biden didn't mention those service members during his State of the Union address. And Jen Psaki's excuse for that today was that he ran out of time, which is possibly the worst thing she could have said, <laughs> considering this was the guy who was checking his watch when he was receiving their bodies at Dover. So the whole time excuse uh, harkens back to that rather tone-deaf moment. And I also have written before about how distasteful I think it is that Biden always brings up his son, Bo, when he's talking about grief. Or he often will conflate Bo's death with service members who were killed in action. And there's nothing that a grieving person wants to hear less than I understand what you're going through. And the media has constantly painted Biden as the grief whisperer. He's the, the you know, the compassionate, um, the compa most compassionate president. He's the consoler in chief. And yet he brings up this same story about having the black hole in your heart and comparing his son's death to everyone else's grief that it comes across as really disingenuous. Uh, at the same time, 
I think that the moment that Bober chose to shout that out was probably not the best. And there has been kind of a general understanding that you don't shout down the president during his State of the Union address and that's considered um, having a lack of decorum. But I just don't have the same guttural reaction like, oh, my God, she was heckling him talking about his dead son. I, I don't think that was quite right either. Yeah, I, Congresswoman Boebert shouldn't have done that. It's worse than I think that you lie that that uh, Joe Wilson shouted out. And I think it was 2010 when Barack Obama you know, lie, lied about his health care plan. But, but this gets back to my regardless of, of whether the moment was right or regardless of whether it was a bit ghastly. This gets back to my, my core complaint with the State of the Union address, which is that the president basically gets a freebie campaign speech and the opposition isn't allowed to respond. I mean, they technically are. There's the, the opposition speech afterwards. It's usually broadcast from like a funeral home and everybody's already tuned out. And, and you, don't, <laughs> you don't really win with the opposition response, right? You just kind of survive it if you're lucky. And, and by the way, I thought Governor Kim Reynolds did a pretty good job, but um, as well as she could have. But uh, in, a, in a parliamentary system, or in a proper legislative system, everything that Biden said would be up for debate, right? And Boebert could have made that point in hopefully a more tactful manner. Uh, the other contentions he made, Biden made, and he made plenty of them that were controversial, other members could have responded to. But instead, there's this expectation that everybody's just going to shut up and clap. And I don't think that's how a democracy should work. I certainly don't think that's how a legislative branch should work. The purpose ought to be dialogue and debate, not this idea that somehow you're supposed to be kissing the ass of the executive. And yeah, I mean, the fact that Boebert made, as you said, a perfectly reasonable point, and I, I think you put it really well there, Amber, uh, but but somehow it's this, she has to do this massive breach of decorum in order to to get that view out there. That's a problem in and of itself. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And like, if I had it my way, people would just be able to heckle the president during his whole speech. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that would be way more interesting, way more fun. I think the American people would probably actually get more out of it than just this horrible teleprompter mess where Joe Biden mistakes Ukrainians for Iranians and all of these other verbal gaffes and, and screw ups. Um, and I always just kind of chuckle at this idea that it, really a fantastical idea that American politics has always been this place of civility and decorum and we all have to treat each other with respect and you're not allowed to have dialogue that is anything that could be considered coarse or anything like that. I mean, this is the same body where people were like beating each other with canes shortly after the founding. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is, it's all. Have you, seen, have you seen the movie Lincoln before Amber? I haven't seen it. No. So they, they have a portrayal of the, the way Congress used to work in there. And it's much more like what you're saying. It's very, people are jeering. It's, it's more like the, the British Parliament. So we used to be that way. We've just become obsessed with comedy now in a way that I'm not sure is healthy. Yeah. And those are the people that we look back on and say like, wow, they were such good debaters and they really understood the importance of healthy dialogue. And it's like they were all just shouting each other down and like getting in fistfights and having duels. But I, that's kind of what is awesome about a democratic system. And we really have lost that. And not that I think that someone should be like going up to punch Joe Biden in the face, but I do think there's something to be said for having a bit of vacuousness in our system that could potentially help solve a lot of these issues that we aren't even really allowed to touch because you either are accused of being disrespectful 
or worse, now you get canceled if you say the wrong thing in the course of a debate. And um, that's really not good for a system that really relies on uh, people being able to debate one another and, and talk about these ideas. One of my favorite stories about British Parliament is that one of their members uh, got in trouble several years ago because he called another member uh, a sanctimonious dwarf. And he later <laughs> apologized to dwarfs for comparing them to the, the member who he had been insulting, which is just, how come we can't have this? You know, why do we have to get all long-winded? Oh, my, my friend, the great gentleman from the state of Idaho, why can't we have that more full contact in politics? I mean, it's, it, there's always, there always has to be the mirage of consensus, when, when in reality, people disagree. So let them disagree. Let them have it out. Try to minimize the theater. I know that's a problem in some parliaments. Try to minimize that aspect of it and have a really productive discussion rather than having to cloak it all in, in false agreement. Amber, before we go, I found myself for the first time last week, last night not hating the fact that Joe Biden was president. And the reason is this. He has always ruled off putting American troops in Ukraine, including at the State of the Union last night. He said, that's not on the table. We're not going to do that. NATO nations may be another story, but in Ukraine, that is not an option. I wonder if, if somebody like Marco Rubio, for example, would rule that out, right? Or a Bill Crystal type president, if he would, would really rule that out. Do you think that Biden's perhaps more moderate approach is encouraging to you? I think it is. It also kind of concerns me, though, because I don't think it's a good idea to give away the game, so to speak, on foreign policy. And part of why I think Trump was so successful with his foreign policy is that he was unpredictable. So he we all kind of knew that Trump didn't want to get involved in a war, but he would also go tell Putin that he was going to blow up like the Kremlin palace and watch the golden towers crumble. And he made the Japanese prime minister or sorry, the Chinese uh, president watch the uh, drone strikes that he sent and was bragging about how many targets they hit. And I, it, we haven't really seen foreign policy like that. And it turned out to be surprisingly effective. Um, so as much as I love Biden, committing to not sending troops. I think that's the right policy. I wish that he wouldn't say it so plainly out loud because I don't know that that is helpful in as a means of deterrence. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.